Would you join me in praying before we start this message? God, thank you for today. God, thank you for this opportunity to to hear from your word and and to praise you, God. And Lord, as we get into the message, I pray, Lord, that the the things that are of me, that are in in this message, God, would, would fade away. But God, what you are trying to communicate would just come to the forefront. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I think in life, there, there's just so much craziness going on. There's, there's all this noise. There are things fighting for our attention. And right, right now, we're hearing all these reports about good things. We're, we're hearing about how COVID is coming to the end. We're hearing all these vaccinations and all this stuff. And, and all this other stuff is coming in and saying, okay, this is maybe good. Maybe this is bad. But the news has lots of information to tell us. They are trying to communicate to us that there are bad things in the world, things that we should really not like, and that there are also good things in the world, things that we should be really rejoicing in. And, and as individuals, we have a decision to make. We can choose how we want to respond to these news. We can choose to respond to good news with rejoicing, and we can choose to respond to bad news with sorrow and, and grieving. And I think how we choose to respond to the news, is, it really says a lot about our, about our character. It says whether we are people who are humble when bad things happen and we are, are grieving alongside people, grieving alongside these devastations that are taking place in the world. When bad things happen in the world, and, and we don't, and we just kind of go along with life as normal, not willing to acknowledge these bad things that are happening in the world, I think it says something about our character. It says that we don't want to concern ourselves with the problems that other people are having. These characteristics of humility or self-exaltation is riddled throughout the Bible, There are people full of humility and there are people full of trying to win themselves status. And self-exaltation is a word that's commonly used in the Bible. And if you're not familiar with that word, again, it's kind of a Bible word. It means exaltation of oneself, elevating one's own status, personality, or importance, especially over others. And we know through the Bible that humility is the way of Jesus. The self-exaltation is the trappings of mankind. We often have to battle against our own pride, against trying to put ourselves over other people. And as we go throughout this next part of David's story, I want to have you keep in mind that we are about to read about people who are either exemplifying either humility or self-exaltation. So our text today is from 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 4, three chapters. I promise you I'm not going to read it. Don't worry. We're not going to be sitting here forever. Uh, But I am going to do my best to summarize it. It's a lengthy section of Scripture. And I would encourage you, if you have time today, or, or maybe even make time today, to actually read through these sections of Scripture. It, is, it reads like a movie. <laughs> it is intense. There is a lot of subplots going on in this section of Scripture. And what I find so interesting about this section of Scripture is there are three deaths that take place over the three chapters. And they're kind of weird milestones to mark this section of Scripture, but the writer of 2 Samuel 
centers the entire story in these three chapters around these three deaths. And he does that for a reason. But before we start, I want to remind us of where we find David in our text today. We know, as Pastor Adam preached last week, that Saul and Jonathan have both died, and David has been mourning over them. Pastor Adam covered that last Sunday, and he explained it very well, just how broken David was over the death of Saul. Scripture records David's reaction as lamenting over Saul's death. And this whole time since we started reading David's story, it has been within the context of David and Saul. Saul as the current king and David as the next anointed king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1, we read, In the course of time. It's the very first thing that it says there. And it's the writer's way of communicating to us, the reader, that time has passed. We're not jumping right from David mourning immediately into David moving on to go to Judah or to go to uh, Judah and the place of Hebron. He actually takes time to mourn. He takes time to actually grieve and go through this process. This isn't the next hour or even the next day. And those of you who have suffered the loss of a loved one, you know what it feels like when the passing of days turn into weeks and those weeks into months and then it turns into years all of a sudden and yet you're still going through all those emotions. So as we read 2 Samuel chapter 2, there is space between chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're not sure how much time has passed, but we do know that time has passed since the death of Saul and Jonathan. And after time has passed, we read about how Israel is going to respond to Saul's death. But before that, we get the picture of what David is doing and how he is responding and how he's going to assume the role of king, at least one of the two kings. The first part of chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, we see a great example given by David. David has this monumentous challenge before him. David knows the calling that God, that God has for him, and it is to be the next king of Israel. God had a way, had way back with Samuel anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And I'm sure in this moment with Saul dead, David is kind of in a dilemma. He knows that maybe this might be the opportunity for him to actually pursue being king. But we see just a great example in David of what we should do in moments when we don't know exactly what to do. Even in moments when we know what we should be doing, man, David shows us an example of just humility. David, rather than going and trying to take the kingship, he actually pauses. He stops. And he looks to God and he says, God, what are you wanting me to do in this moment? What is the next thing I need to do? David is looking at God and saying, God, I I need you to tell me. I need your guidance in this. David could have easily rounded up the troops and made for Jerusalem to claim the throne. But David doesn't do that. He stops, pauses, and he does the most important thing that is a great example for us. He invites God into the decision of what he should do next. Rather than being sent to Jerusalem like maybe we think God would do for David, 
he actually tells David, go to Hebron, a city in Judah. And as Anna explained really well, Judah is just one of the tribes of Israel. It's the southernmost tribe. And there David actually gets anointed king, but not of all Israel, of just Judah. And I can't help but see a parallel in, in this kind of situation to, to my life, and maybe you can too, moments when we know what we want to do, know, moments when we know that it, it is an opportunity to do something, and yet we're put in a period of waiting. I know for me, when I finished Bible college, I, I, even before I finished, I was like, okay, I'm going to get a job right out of Bible college. I am going to just move from college immediately into working and working in a church. That is the calling that God has placed on my life. And so, man, I'm just going to walk into that. And so I started applying at churches and, and not really, to be honest, I'm not, not even really praying about it just applying and sending up my application because I knew that that was where I wanted to be. And so I finished Bible college and, and in a very silly way, immediately got married to Lara. And by that, I mean graduated, walked through the ceremony, and the very next day got married. <laughs> Don't recommend it. And, and then we, so we got married, we went on our honeymoon, came back, and we moved into Lara's basement suite. And when I say basement suite, that is generous. <laughs> it was maybe 600 square feet. It was tiny. And so we moved into this small, small place and waited. And I had had, uh, sorry, I had a couple opportunities to, to interview with some churches, but nothing really went beyond that. And so in the basement, I was, and Lara was off working, and we had a conversation, and it was brought to my attention very quickly that I needed to start working and paying for stuff, which, yep, sure needed to do that. And so I started looking for jobs, and eventually I found a job with uh, a family friend doing some landscaping. Not exactly what I wanted to do, <laughs> but I did it, and I was faithful to it. And I started praying more and more and saying, God, where, where is this leading? What are you doing through this? And I was just not sure. But the truth of the matter was, as much as I look back at that time and be and say, I was praying, I was, I was seeking God, I, I really wasn't. I, I thought more about it and I realized that, yeah, I prayed for God to give me a job. I didn't ask for, for what God was doing in this season. I didn't ask for God to show me what he was wanting me to do through this season. I just was trying to make do on my own strength and on my own merit, knowing that I have the schooling, I can now get a job. And I think in the midst of all of that, I missed the opportunity of what God was trying to teach me in that waiting period. And so it took a while, and it was six months. It really wasn't that long. But in that moment, when you're waiting for something, especially when it's something that's frustrating you, man, those months feel like years. It just slogs and, and slows down and just feels like forever. But I moved on and, and eventually did get a job in Medicine Hat. And in, in, the, in the long run, it really was a short period of time. But I think I still missed what God was trying to do with me in that waiting period. I, I completely blew it. I missed it. And I wonder now if, if God really was trying to teach me something that maybe, maybe even to this day I still haven't really fully learned. 
That's why our first takeaway as we look through this section of Scripture and looking at David, who gets appointed king of Judah rather than Israel, the first thing that we can learn is that David is patient. He is patient. And patience is an attitude of humility. Patience is countercultural, is this countercultural blessing from God. We all hate waiting. We hate waiting at a red light, waiting for it to turn green. We, we hate waiting for people to stop talking in a movie. We, we, were, we were hating waiting for the pandemic to be over. But patience allows us to slow down in frustrating moments and invite God into our situation. This is the example that David shows us. David being obedient in patience allows him to follow God's command to go to Hebron. And what happens over the next few chapters actually takes, takes about seven years to happen. David, throughout that time, he, he waits to be king of Israel. He doesn't make a move for Jerusalem. And, and here we see just how different he is versus Saul. Saul would have immediately gone from where he was to claim Jerusalem, to claim what he thought and saw as rightfully his. I mean, that's why he chased David for so long. He was afraid of David's claim on the throne. So throughout the next seven years, we see David rule from the city of Hebron. And the Bible notes in that period of time that he has many sons. While David seemingly waits, many other things take place around him, including the death of Asahel and the subsequent death of Abner. Asahel is the brother of Joab, and Joab is a pretty important character in our story today. He is the commander of David's army. Joab brings David's army to kind of square off against the new king of Israel's army. When Saul died, Abner, this again, the commander of Saul's army, this, this man who's pretty important in Jerusalem and all of Israel, he appoints and kind of places a puppet king that he can control. And the king is the fourth son of Saul named Ish-bosheth. Man, I cannot tell you how many times I practiced saying that. Okay, I nailed it. All right, so the two armies are squaring off, and Abner still leading Israel's army on the one side, and Joab is on the other leading King David's army. They make this agreement that they shouldn't just fight to the death between the whole army, rather that they should appoint 12 people from each army and send them to fight each other. Scripture describes the, the coming battle that takes place as fierce. However, it is noted that David's army throughout the battle wins. Joab and his army wins the war, but it is not without casualty. In the middle of the fight, Asahel, who des who's described as a wild gazelle of a runner, can't make that up, that's crazy, what an amazing compliment. Can you imagine being on the track and field and being like, you're a wild gazelle, go for it. Well, we read in chapter 2 that Asahel is giving chase to Abner. And, and, and Abner is, is seeing Asahel, and again, he's running like a wild gazelle after him. And so he warns, he warns Asahel, Abner says, listen, I am strong, and if you keep chasing me, I am going to kill you. Turn aside, go after someone else. Because you are making to kill me, but you know that I'm a powerful man. I will kill you. And Asahel does not turn. 
He doesn't go after someone else. He continues to chase after Abner. And the fight sours when Abner kills Asahel with a spear. And shortly after, we hear about Abner and Joab calling off the fight. Again, we, we are reading about one nation. I mean, the nation's a little bit divided, <laughs> obviously, but this is one nation at war within itself. It's not two. These men should be fighting alongside one another. These, fe- these men are instead fighting for pride and fighting for self-exaltation. Joab wants to be seen as the best commander, and Abner wants to be seen as the best commander. And we don't read about David ordering or allowing this fight to happen, and yet the fight takes place. And when fighting, fighting happens when prides get bruised, And the act of Abner killing Asahel will not be the only bloodshed because of this fight. And yet the fight gets called off, at least for now, and we have this sour note as chapter 2 comes to an end. And we get the idea that things aren't quite settled between David and Ish-bosheth, but even more than that, we get the idea that it isn't settled between Joab and Abner. And that is the case. We have one more event happen before we find out what really will take place between Abner and Joab. Abner, he returns home with the army in 2 Samuel chapter 3, and we read that he starts to strengthen his own position with Israel, not Ishbosheth, his king. Abner is concerned about his pride and his power and his status, and so he is strengthening his position. And we get the picture of Abner as this man who has these plans for his own status and his own power. And the next thing we read is Abner makes a move that a new king would have actually made to assert his power and to show that he's actually the next king. He sleeps with the concubine of the late king Saul. And Ish-bosheth, the actual king, sees this and takes it as an affront to his power. And Abner and him, we read, get into this verbal fight. Abner ends up with the last word as he declares that he is going to see King David rule over all of Israel. In a quick pause in our summary of Scripture, we, we are seeing the first of a few men who will be introduced that is just absolutely hungry for power. Abner is doing everything he can do to gain power and to gain control. This should come across to us, the readers, as directly opposite to David. David, who is patiently ruling from Hebron through all of this, because he is waiting on God's next word, or he is waiting for God to make the next thing happen. So we see our juxtaposition between people who are seeking after God versus people who are seeking their own best interest in life. And a piece of wisdom that we can glean from this passage of Scripture that directly relates to this is is very simply, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is found in James uh, chapter 4 verse 6. 
By the way, this phrase of of God opposing the proud and lifting up or giving grace to the humble is mentioned six more times in Scripture. And one, one of those times is by David in Psalm, in the book of Psalms. In, in, uh, in chapter 138. So Abner, offended by Ish-bosheth and, and what he's done, sends messengers to David. He is going to see David as king versus Ish-bosheth. And the letter states Abner's intent, that he wants to do this, and David sees it, and he also hears that Abner is trying to make some sort of an alliance, some sort of agreement. David, after, after hearing Abner's request through the messengers, he sends the messengers back to Abner. But he also sends messengers back to Ish-bosheth. David is willing to come to an agreement, but he's not going to play dirty with Abner. He is wanting to address the king of Israel in addition to Abner. So David is willing to come to an agreement. The condition is that he will get his wife, Michal, or, or Michal, or Michelle, or Michael, whichever way you want to word it, the promised wife of David that Saul actually made an agreement with David to get. It's Saul, Saul's daughter. And with that said, the, the messengers leave with David's response, and we see the messengers also go to the two men. Again, we see that David is going above and beyond in his treatment of Ishbosheth. He isn't willing to follow Abner's political schemes behind Ishbosheth's back, and it is Ishbosheth who sends Michal back to David. Abner goes from there. He, he knows that this is happening. And so Abner, rather than again going with Ishbosheth to kind of make this agreement, he himself goes to the elders of Israel, of all the tribes of Israel, to get them to agree to place King David over Israel. And as far as we know, because again, Scripture doesn't say anything about it, this is all behind Ishbosheth's back. He is not involved in any way. Abner is again making these power play moves to set himself up in a way of power. The elders we get the sense that this is what they want, and so they agree, and they're all eager to have David as king. And when all this is done, Abner quickly makes his way to David to continue alliance talks. David, again, hears about Abner, but this time in, in hears from Abner, but this time in person. There's no messengers going between them. And again, we don't know if Abner's plan in talking to David is trying to get himself into a seat of power, maybe the commander of all of David's armies as opposed to Joab. We don't, we don't really know, but when Joab hears about it, hears that David and Abner have met, that's the way that Joab takes it. He sees Abner as trying to take power from himself and trying to scheme against David himself. So David meets with Abner and he sends him off. And the writer of 2 Samuel makes sure to note that David sends Abner off with peace. He is protected by David. Then like a good movie set up, setting up some good plot, Joab returns to Hebron, the city where David is ruling, with his raiding party, finishing the raids. And he gets word, he hears about Abner's visit. He knows that Abner was here, and Joab, furious that Abner came in and left, goes to David, 
has this like yelling spat with David about how, how dare you kind of meet with him? What are you thinking? He's just scheming. And so Joab, under a guise of secrecy, sends his messengers without David's knowing and without David's permission to Abner. And he gets Abner to actually come back. And Abner comes back and Joab cor- corners him in a room. And very shortly after, stabs him to death with his brother. David is left in the dark with all of this. And he is horror-stricken as to what has just taken place. He mourns the loss of Abner, this great man of Israel. Whether, again, characteristic-wise, he's not that great, but he has done a lot for Israel. And so we get this outcry from David in chapter 3, verse 39. And he says, Today... Though I am the anointed king, I am weak. These sons of Zeruah, again, Joab and his brothers, are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. David laments over Abner, and he is greatly frustrated with the commander of his army, Joab. David, in this moment, realizes the struggle it will be to be king. He knows that he is no longer just in charge of him and a few trusted men. David now has a kingdom that he is going to be leading. And in this moment of failure of his men, David feels the weight and burden of this failure. Some of the toughest times in my personal life that I have experienced pain and and hurt is when people I really care for do stupid things. Do things that hurt other people or end up hurting themselves. That is a tough place to be to see a friend really struggling or a brother really struggling because they have made poor decisions. And David, with his humility, leads all of Judah and eventually all of Israel in mourning the loss of Abner. And as Christians, we know that what Joab has, has done is, is sin. He has killed another man un, unrightfully, unlawfully, with deception in his heart. And we know that sin is a powerful thing when left unchecked. Joab and his brother killed a man, and, and while it may have been for revenge, we also get the idea that Joab was trying to protect his power and his position in David's army as commander. Joab knew that that David allowed Abner to come in and to leave in peace. This treachery and deception that Joab ploys to kill Abner is, without mistake, a wicked thing. One which David rightly calls out in verse 34, saying, Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before the wicked. When sin creeps in to our lives, consequences are sure to follow. And the consequence for sin is is an ultimate price if we don't have Jesus in our life. And, And Joab has welcomed sin into his life. David is weeping over the loss of Abner, but I wonder if he's also weeping over the loss of his commander, Joab, as well. 
And Joab probably thought he was doing David a favor. He probably thought through all of this that he was protecting David and his claim as king. And we see, we see this in verses 24 to 25 in chapter 3. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Nir, he came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Joab is just interested in his own self-preservation. He wants his own power. He's worried that Abner is going to come in and try to take control from him. And again, David responds in the midst of this. We see David's heart, this heart of humility, this this heart attitude that I believe that we as people of God should seek after. David is willing to look past the history with Abner and Ishbosheth himself. He is willing to make an agreement with them to try to bring peace to his kingdom, to bring peace to Israel. However, that is left in the dust with Joab's action. And David is left picking up the pieces. And he chooses to lead all of Israel in mourning over the death of a once great commander, Abner. These short chapters of of 2 Samuel 2 through 4 continue from there to even see the death of Ishbosheth, murdered by another pair of brothers, strikingly similar to Abner's death. David once again mourns over the loss of yet again another leader of Israel. And that's where we are left in chapter 4. David seeing killings and David mourning. And these men who are hungry for power trying to take control and seize power for themselves. David, through all of these events, David approaches each death through humility He doesn't rush his ascent to the throne. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. Even though I'm sure he probably would have thought that maybe it's better if I actually take the throne and and I can deal with all of this. But David, in, in the midst of all of this, he settles back and he waits for God to speak to him. David, with no mistake, he is broken. He is grieved by the depths of treachery and brokenness of the state of his nation, he is mourning. We see this with Saul in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. We see this with Abner in chapter 3. And we see this in the way that he handles news of King Ishbosheth's death in chapter 4. These passages all centered around these power-hungry men. And then we also hear about David's response through it all. And through all of this, we see what, what, the, what self-exaltation in these men, what, what the rewards are for that. We see that there is a physical death, but we also know that there is a spiritual death. A spiritual death because pride is a sinful attitude. And we have just talked again in, in quite detail about their physical deaths. And yet we still have David's response through all of these events, grounding us in what God's response is in the midst of all these situations. These are God's people fighting amongst themselves, trying to stake claim to power. And God opposes 
the proud. All through these events, we know David's response could have easily been just to deal with the offender without thought or remorse. He could have just done it and then been like, well, that's done. We need to focus on other things. Remember, David is the king. He can make any decisions without input from anyone. Yet David's response is one of humility, and he takes it before God, and and he mourns as God would have him mourn. With the deaths of Saul, Abner, and Ishbosheth, David's response each time is to lament and to turn to God. David's response to death is an important example for all of us. His humility is an important example for all of us. In life, we are always going to be dealing with troubled people. We're always going to be dealing with people that frustrate us. People that we know who are seeking for power and control. People who are trying to beat us in the race. David gives us an example of humility. Of not trying to play the same game that other people are playing. David's David's example of patience, of having a humble heart, and of going before God is an example that we need in our lives today. This world is full of broken people who are hungry for more. We idolize people who have power and who have obscene amounts of wealth. But we as Christians know that Jesus' philosophy as to how we should live our life is to be last, not first. Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest, be the least. And Jesus himself shows that by washing the disciples' feet. Jesus, who is God, who created his disciples, who, who made them, who knit them together in his mother's womb, He is the creator and and, and controller of everything, and yet he humbles himself to take care of the least. He heals the sick and the downtrodden, and he brings hope into a world that is desperate for it. Our lives as Christians must be marked with humility, patience, and seeking God first above all else. Let me pray. God, thank you for today. Lord, I thank you that you are at work in the world. God, I thank you that David gives us this example of patience, of peace, of humility, and of going to you, God, above all else, first and foremost. So God, I thank you for this message, and I thank you for David's example. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.